behind closed doors, I have often griped about uh, the lectionary towards the end of Easter. We hear over and over and over again these chapters of the Last Supper discourse in John. For context, if you've been to Mass this week, you've probably listened to a broken record because this is the third time that you've heard this gospel within a week. Now, not until really preparing this homily thoroughly did I understand how important this gospel was. And so I want to uh, speak about, make this homily about a doctrine that I've never heard preached on, at least in a Sunday, try to make it understandable, why it's necessary for us to believe in it, and also what does it look like whenever we push back against it. And that is the doctrine of predestination. Predestination. Now, whenever you heard that word, you probably immediately thought, well, that's Protestant. And the reality is, no, it's been hijacked. It is scriptural, and it is necessary for us to believe as Catholics. Now, I'm going to, before going into today's gospel and how predestination plays out, or the lack of belief in predestination plays out in the lives of the disciples, and so in our lives, in the modern context, I just want to set the stage for how we've ended up here because of theologians throughout church history. First, let's start with the Protestants and work backwards. We know John Calvin, the beginner of the Calvinist movement, also known as we know Presbyterians, believed in predestination as uh, this staunch way of seeing reality. That is, as we would call more to distinguish our view of Uh, against theirs, double predestination. That God wills that we all go to heaven, or that some go to heaven, regardless of what they do, and that God wills that some go to hell, regardless of what they do. That is what we would call, as a shorthand, double predestination, or also a heresy. This is something that the church does not teach. Because Calvin wanted to really emphasize God's almighty power. But then you have a theologian much earlier in the church's history, about 1,100 years earlier, in St. Augustine. And St. Augustine is going to clarify this doctrine of predestination because there's another cleric, another man, named Pelagius. I guess you would call him Father Pelagius. He was a priest who really emphasized man's power. That is, man does not need God's grace at all. He can simply be saved by his own efforts. All man has to do is try hard, do good works, and he can be saved. To which St. Augustine had to respond, no, that is not the case, that man is got an intellect that is so darkened and a will that is so weakened by sin that he does not know the way to salvation because of his darkened intellect and he does not have the strength to obtain it because of his weakened will and so we have this doctrine of predestination clarified by augustine over this 
view that man can save himself by his own efforts, and then is later hijacked by John Calvin to say, well, it's only within God's power. Man's actions mean nothing. So that is the stage. Just wanted to set the table first. And then talk about what is it that's going on in this gospel today and why talk about predestination in regards to this at all. First, let me set the context at the table for the gospel. This is a frustrating, as I've said, griped behind many closed doors before gospel to preach about because it's really this long and intense conversation. Like imagine if the gospel were a movie and as you're going through the movie, there are different parts of the movie that are like accelerated. You know, like you get um, perhaps years covered within 10 minutes of a movie. And then there are these really dramatic conversations that maybe last for 10 or 20 minutes. This would be the really dramatic conversation in the movie. That for four chapters, Jesus is having this intense dialogue with the disciples and with the Father because the climax of his life is about to happen. That in the earlier chapter, John 13, the way that Jesus sits down at table and begins the conversation at the Last Supper, according to John, is that he knows that his hour has come. He knows where he is going. And so Jesus begins that in mind with this conversation. Just like, imagine yourself, place yourself there with Jesus at the Last Supper. He knows that his hour has come, that his passion is imminent, and he knows where he is going. He is going to the Father. And you can imagine like the, the tension and the intensity in that scene. And so, how does Jesus begin the conversation? He says, I know where I'm going, now let me wash your feet. What Jesus does is, he sets up the sacrament of confession. We know this, that the washing of the feet is him giving the power to the apostles to go and wash the sins of many. And then Peter says, don't, you won't wash my feet. And Jesus says, you will have no part in me if I don't wash your feet. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to the Father, and I want you to have a part in me. I want you to come to the Father with me. And then after he forgives them of their sins, what Jesus does is that he predicts, he identifies his betrayer. One of you here will betray me. Everybody's freaking out. Nose goes, you know, who's, who's, betraying, who's betraying him? I don't know. But then Jesus, after Judas leaves the scene, says to Peter, you will deny me three times. So now everyone is on edge. Jesus looks at his best friend in the eye and publicly, you know, shames him. He does him like that in front of his friends and says, you will deny me three times as well. And now when everyone is on edge, questioning their own weakness and knowing that Jesus is going to suffer death and go to the Father, this is where we have this conversation, the continuing. 
And when everyone is on edge, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself, so that where I am going, you also may be. After saying that, the disciples are still jarred because they know where Jesus is going. They know that he's going to suffer and die. They know that he's going to the cross in a sense. And so then we have this dialogue, and now I want to kind of get into how Pelagianism rears itself up in the lives of the disciples and how Pelagianism rears its head in the lives of us today. So what Philip does to accelerate the conversation, he says, Jesus, just show us the face of the Father, and that will be enough. In other words, we don't want to have to follow you to the Father. We know that you are taking the path of the cross. Just show us the face of the Father, and we can find another path. We can find another way. If you just show us how to be one with God, we won't have to go through all the trouble of going through the cross, because that will expose our weaknesses. That will make us have to rely upon you. And so the way in which Pelagianism rears its head in Philip, and Philip is kind of this model for us today in a bad way, is that we often say, just tell me what I have to do to be happy, God. Or I know what my ultimate is end. My, my, what my ultimate end is. I don't want to have to follow the path of the cross. I don't want to. And so Jesus says, you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But why does Philip reject Christ in that way? He wants to see the Father. He wants to be with God for all eternity. He has a good desire. But he rejects Christ, as in he also rejects the way of suffering. He does because he does not want to face his human weakness that Jesus has predicted that they will all flee. And he does not want to face his need for God's grace. And this is where modern man comes in. Is that we desire so terribly to not face our own weakness our own inadequacies, our own ability to reject Christ, and the reality that we cannot love purely in the, in the face of suffering. We reject that so deeply that we want to find our own happiness apart from Christ. And the problem with that is that it causes our hearts to be troubled. Because we reject the way of the cross, we reject our ultimate happiness. And what we do is, like Philip, is say, just show me the face of the Father. 
Show me the face of the Father. And the, the mindset or the attitude behind that is that if I can act without grace towards salvation, then I can act without grace towards my own happiness. If I don't have to rely upon you, Jesus, for my salvation, then I don't really need you at all. The mindset is, God, am I good? Are we good? Me and you. Great. Because now I'm going to find my happiness apart from you, now that I know that I'm good. Isn't this the mindset of the disciples throughout this whole conversation? Jesus has just said, hey, I am going to the cross to suffer and die. And the only thing that the disciples are wondering is, is it me or is it him? You know, just know this goes. Or am I good? Look beyond yourself, disciples. Recognize your own weakness. Recognize that Jesus is going to suffer. And then accept the grace that he offers you. That is what Jesus is saying to us. Don't just ask the question, oh yeah, no, no, you're, you're good. You're good, uh, Simon. You don't have to worry. You're good, James. You don't have to worry. That's not what Jesus says. What he says is, be with me. Accept the grace that it takes to be with me. Because I have prepared a place for you. So often we ask, am I good? So that we can just go find our other home. And this is really where the goodness of the doctrine of predestination comes up. Because when we ask God all the time, God, am I good? Am I good? Have I followed the commandments? Have I been pleasing to you? Am I no longer in a state of mortal sin? Great. Okay. I'm going to make a home for myself. I'm going to find my own happiness after that. When we do that, then we live as orphans. Then we live apart from a place that Jesus has set up for us. This is where the goodness of the doctrine of predestination is, because what Jesus has said is that I have prepared a place for you. Yes, you are weak. Yes, you will fail. But do not let your hearts be troubled. Because I have gone before you and prepared a place for you. And I am the way and the truth and the life. Not only has he prepared a place for us, but he has given us a road. Not only in imitating him, but at the very end of this gospel, a very confusing line, but a very refreshing line for us Catholics. That whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and will do greater ones than these, because I am going to the Father. What does that line mean? I will do greater works than Jesus himself. What Jesus is talking about here is the life of the sacraments. That the disciples, yes, they have touched Christ with their hands, but the greater work here is that they will now consume him in the Eucharist. That Jesus has healed people of their bodily illnesses, but these disciples now will raise people from the dead through absolution. Do not let your hearts be troubled, because I have given you the life of the sacraments. If you die to yourself, accept your weakness, receive the grace of the sacraments to be led to the eternal homeland, do not let your hearts be troubled by your own weaknesses. Do not be anxious, because I have prepared a place for you to be with me for eternity.